Welcome back, Hemming Brains, to the Hemming Brains List Podcast, Part 10, Chapter 5. Thomas feels like he's on the way out. Is it just paranoia? And wifey is potentially making a Will Smith of him. Yikes. I, uh, I had to be topical. Put in a Will Smith reference, you know, you just gotta, when it's going around the world like that. Um, you know, I was inevitably seeing all the gossip about his wife cheating and with another musician. Um, and I don't know, this chapter just kind of reminded me of that. So I went for the reference, pop culture reference, occasionally I'll do that. And as basic and lame as that is, I see that the conversation has not engaged with my gossiping, Hollywood gossip at all, and you've actually gone in and discussed the actual chapter. So, good for you. TA131901 says, this chapter finally, kind of, addresses what's up with Gerda. I felt vibes of Tolstoy's Crucis Sonata, the wife is making music and love with another man. From Crucis Sonata, the husband's monologue. What is music? What does it do to us? And why does it do to us what it does? People say that music has an uplifting effect on the soul. What rot? It isn't true. It's true that it has an effect. It has a terrible effect at any rate on me, but it has nothing to do with any uplifting of the soul. Its effect is on the soul, is neither uplifting or degrading. It merely irritates me. What is the philosophical system that described in the book that Tom reads? Does it come off a bit new agey? Um, kind of addresses what's up with Goethe. Star 415 says, This was my initial impression, but after finishing the chapter I changed my mind. It is yet again about Thomas, and this time about his struggles with his mortality and legacy. No idea what is really going on with Goethe. It is more about how Thomas is feeling and reacting to Goethe's relationship. As Jambra mentioned, the man is keeping her on a pedestal since she is portraying his own mother. Yeah, it's funny that how we only get to see her through the eyes of her husband or the eyes of her son. And that makes sense. Knowing that it's kind of meant to symbolise his mum. Um... Alright. The conversation went on to talk about what Tom was reading. Techrafix says it's Schopenhauer. Chapter is from his work called The World as Will and Representation. It's interesting that you see New Age in there because he was interested in Indian philosophy. I found it interesting that Thomas is drawn to Schopenhauer, a philosopher known for his philosophical pessimism. There you go. Schopenhauer. I know nothing about Schopenhauer. Um, but I know a little bit about Indian philosophy. Um, I, to be honest, during that, you know, it was probably about two or three pages where he went on that little philosophical bent. And even though I've read it twice now, I just tune out during that stuff because, I don't know, I guess that doesn't really grab me anymore. It did a lot when I was younger. I was really interested in philosophy. And I still am. But I don't really want a philosophical monologue during a fictional novel very often, unless it's very well integrated. Maybe this one wasn't well integrated. 
Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Uh, all I know is that I, I, my attention lapsed during that part. I don't know if that's on me or on the author. Let's read chapter 6. In the autumn, Dr. Lael said, Making play like a woman with his beautiful eyes, it is the nerves, Senator. The nerves are to blame for everything. And once in a while, the circulation is not what it should be. May I venture to make a suggestion? You need another little rest. These few some Sundays by the sea during the summer haven't un- amounted to much, of course. It's the end of September. Trev Monday is still open. There are still a few people there. Drive over, Senator, and sit on the beach for a little while. Two or three weeks, and will do you a great deal of good. And Thomas Buttonbrook said yes and amen, but when he told his family of the arrangement, Christian suggested going with him. I'll go with you, Thomas, he said quite simply. You don't mind, I suppose. And the Senator, though he did mind very much, said yes and amen to this arrangement as well. Christian was now more than ever master of his own time. His fluctuating health had constrained him to give up his last undertaking, the Champagne and Spirit Agency. The man who used to come and sit on his sofa and nod at him in the twilight had happily not recurred of late, but the misery in the side had, if anything, grown worse and added to this a whole list of other infirmities of which Christian kept the closest watch, and which he described in all companies with his nose wrinkled up. He often suffered from that long-standing dread of paralysis of the tongue, throat and oesophagus, even of the extremities and of the brain, of which there were no actual symptoms, but the fear in itself was almost worse. Excuse me while I have a drink. He told in detail, one day, when he was making tea, how he held the lighted match not over the spirit lamp but over the open bottle of methylated spirit instead so that not only himself but the people in his own and the adjacent buildings nearly went up in flames. And he dwelt in particular detail, straining every resource he had at his command to make himself perfectly clear upon a certain ghastly anomaly which he had of late observed in himself. It was this that on certain days, i.e. under certain weather conditions and in certain states of mind, he could not see an open window without having a horrible and inexplicable impulse to jump out. It was a mad and almost uncontrollable desire, a sort of desperate foolhardiness. The family were dining on Sunday in Fisher's Lane, and he described how he had to summon all his powers and crawl on his hands and knees to the window to shut it. At this point, everybody shrieked, his audience rebelled, and would listen no more. He told these and similar things with a certain horrible satisfaction, but the thing about himself which he did not know, which he never studied or described, but which nonetheless worse and worse was his singular lack of tact. He told in the family circle anecdotes of such a nature that the club was the only possible place for them. And even his sense of personal modesty seemed to be breaking down, He was on friendly terms with his sister-in-law Gerda, but when he displayed to her the beautiful weave and texture of his English socks, he did not stop at that, but rolled up his wide, checkered trouser leg to to far above his knee. Look, he said, wrinkling his nose in distress, look how thin I am getting. Isn't it striking and unusual? And there he sat, sadly gazing at his crooked, bony leg, and the gaunt knee visible through his white woolen drawers. 
His mercantile activity then was a thing of the past, but such hours as he did not spend at the club he liked to fill in with one sort of occupation or another, and he would proudly point out that he had never actually ceased to work. He extended his knowledge to lang- of, lang- of languages and embarked upon a study of Chinese, though this was for the sake of acquiring knowledge simply, with no practical purpose in view. He worked at it industriously for two weeks, He was also just at this time occupied with a project of enlarging an English-German dictionary, which he had found inadequate, but he really needed a little change, and it would be better for, too, for the senator to have somebody with him, so he did not allow his business to keep him in town. The two brothers drove out together to the sea along the turnpike, which was nothing but a puddle. The rain drummed on the carriage top, and they spa- and they hardly spoke. Christian's eyes roved hither and yon, and he was as if listening to uncanny noises. Thomas sat muffled in his cloak, shivering, gazing with bloodshot eyes, his moustache stiffly sticking out beyond his white cheeks. They drove up to the Kerr house in the afternoon, their wheels grating in the wet gravel, Old broker Gosh sat in the glass veranda drinking rum punch. He stood up, whistling through his teeth, and they all sat down together to have a little something warm while the trunks were being carried up. Her Gosh was a late guest at the cur- at the cure, and there were a few other people as well, an English family, a Dutch maiden lady, and a Hamburg bachelor, all of them presumably taking their rest before table de haute for it was like the grave everywhere, but for the sound of the rain. Let them sleep. As for her gosh, he was not in the habit of sleeping in the daytime. He was glad enough to get a few hours sleep at night. He was far from well. He was taking a late cure for the benefit of his trembling, which he suffered from in all his limbs. Hang it, he could hardly hold a glass of grog, and more often than not he would not write at all. so that the translation of Lope de Vega got on but slowly. He was in a very low mood indeed, and even his curses lacked relish. Let it go hang was his constant phrase, which he repeated on every occasion, and often on none at all. And the senator, he how was he feeling? How long were the gentlemen thinking of stopping? Oh, Dr. Langles had sent him out on account of his nerves. He had obeyed their orders. Of course, despite the frightful weather, what doesn't one do out of fear of one's physician? He was really feeling more or less miserable, and they would probably remain there till he, till was a little improvement, till there was a little improvement. Yes, I'm pretty wretched too," said Christian, irritated at Thomas's speaking only of himself. He was about to fetch out his repertoire: the nodding man, the spirit bottle, the open window when the senator interrupted him by going to engage the rooms. The rain did not stop. It washed away the earth. It danced upon the sea, which was driven back by the southwest wind and left the beaches bare. Everything was shrouded in grey. The streamers, steamers, sorry, went by like wraiths and vanished on the dim horizon. They met the strange guests only at table. The senator in Macintosh and galoshes went walking, with gauche, Christian drank Swedish punch with the barmaid in the pastry shop. Two or three times in the afternoon it looked as though the sun were coming out and a few acquaintances from town appeared 
people who enjoyed a holiday away from their families, Senator Dr. Gisecki, Christian's friend, and Consul Peter Dolman, who looked very ill indeed and was killing himself with Hun Yadi Jonas water. The gentlemen sat together in their overcoats under the awnings of the pastry shop opposite the empty bandstand, drinking their coffee, digesting their five courses, and talking desultorily as they gazed over the empty garden. The news of the town, the last high water, which had gone into the cellars and been so deep that it, in the lower part of the town people had to go about in boats, a fire in the dockyard sheds, a san- senatorial election, these were the topics of conversation. Alfred Lauritsen, of the firm of Sturman and Lauritsen, tea, coffee and spice merchants, had been elected, and Senator Buddenbrook had not approved of the choice. He sat smoking cigarettes, wrapped in his cloak, almost silent, except for a few remarks on his particular subject. One thing was certain, he said, and that was that he had not voted for her, Lauritsen. Lauritsen was an honest fellow and a good man of business, there was no doubt of that, but he was middle class, respectable middle class. His father had fished herrings out of the barrel and handed them across the counter to servant maids. I just lost my spot completely. Servant maids with his own hands. And now they had in the Senate the proprietor of a retail business. Here's Thomas Buddenbrook's father and disowned his eldest son for marrying a shop but that was in the good old days. The standard is being lowered, he said. The social level is not so high as it was. The Senate is being demor- democratised, my dear Giuseppe, and that is no good. Business ability is one thing, but it is not everything. In the, my view, we should demand something more. Alfred Lauritsen, with his big fat... Sorry, his big feet and his boatswain's face. It is offensive to me to think of him in the Senate House. It offends me something in me. I don't know what. It goes against my sense of form. It is a piece of bad taste, in short. G- Senator Giuseppe demurred. He was rather piqued by this expression of opinion. After all, he himself was only the son of a fire commissioner. No, the labourer was worthy of this hire. That was what being a Republican meant. You ought not to smoke so much, Bunbrook, he ended. You won't get any sea air. I'll stop now, said Thomas Bunbrook, flung away the end of his cigarette and closed his eyes. The conversation dragged on, the rain set in again and veiled the prospect. They began to talk about the latest town scandal about P. Philip Casborn, who had been falsifying bills of exchange and now sat behind locks and bars. No... No one felt outraged over the dishonesty. They spoke of it as an act of folly, laughed a bit and shrugged their shoulders. Senator Dr. Giuseppe said that the convicted man had not lost his spirits. He had asked for a mirror, it seemed, there being none in his cell. I'll need a looking glass, he was reported to have said. I shall be here for some time. He had been, like Christian and Dr. Giuseppe, a pupil of the lamented Marcellus Stengel. They all laughed again at this and through their noses without a sign of feeling. Segmund Gosh ordered another grog in a tone of voice that was as good as saying, What's the use of living? Consul Dolman sent for a bottle of brandy. Christian felt inclined to more Swedish punch. 
So Dr. Giusecki ordered some for both of them. Before long, Thomas Buddenbrook began to smoke again, and the idle, cynical, indifferent talk went on, heavy with the food they had eaten, the wine they had drunk, and the damp that depressed their spirits. They talked about business, the business of each one of their of those present. But even this subject roused no great enthusiasm. Oh, there's nothing very good about mine, said Thomas Buddenbrook heavily, and leaned against his head he, sorry, leaned his head against the back of his chair with an air of disgust. Well, you and Dolman asked Senator Giusecki and yawned. You've been devoting yourself entirely to brandy, hey? The chimney can't smoke unless there's a fire, the consul retorted. I look into the office every few days, short hairs are soon combed. And Strunk and Hagenstrom have all the business in their hands anyhow, the broker said morosely, with his elbows sprawled out on the table and his wicked old grey head on his hands. Oh, nothing can compete with a dung heap for smell, Dolman said, with a deliberately coarse pronunciation which must have depressed everybody's spirits, the more, by its hopeless cynicism. Well, and you, Buttonbrook, what are you doing now? Nothing, eh? No, answered Christian, I can't any more. And without more ado, having perceived the mood of the hour, he proceeded to accentuate it. He began, his hat on one side, to talk about his Valparaiso office and Johnny Thunderstorm. Well, in that heat, good God, work, sir? No, sir, as you see, sir. And they puffed their cigarette smoke right in his face. Good God! It was, as always, an incomparable expression of dissolute, impudent, lazy good nature. His brother sat and motionless. <clears throat> Her gosh tried to lift his glass to his thin lips, put it back on the table again, cursing through his shut teeth, and struck the offending arm with his fist. Then he lifted the glass once more and spilled half its contents, draining the remainder furiously at a gulp. And you're shaking, gosh, Peter Dolman exclaimed. Why don't you just let yourself go like me? I'll croak if I don't drink my bottle every day. I've got as far as that, and I'll croak if I do. And how you feel if you couldn't get rid of your dinner, not a single day, I mean, after you've got it in your stomach. And he favoured them with some repulsive details of his condition to which Christian listened with dreadful interest, wrinkling his nose as far as it could go, and counting with a brief and forcible account of his... And, sorry, countering with a brief and forcible account of his misery. It rained harder than ever. It came straight down in sheets and filled the silence of the Kerr Garden with its ceaseless, forlorn and desolate murmur. Yes, life's pretty rotten, said Senator Giusecki. He had been drinking heavily. I'd just as leaf quit, said Christian. Let it go hang, said Hergosh. There comes Fick Dahlbeck, said Senator Giusecki. The proprietress of the cow stalls, a heavily bold-faced woman in her forties, came by with a pail of milk and smiled at the gentleman. Senator Giusecki let his eyes rove after her. What a bosom, he said. Consul Dolman added a lewd witticism with the result that all the gentlemen laughed once more through their noses. The waiter was summoned. I've finished the bottle, Schroeder, said Consul Dolman. May as well pay. We have, the sa we have to some time or other. You, Christian, Giuseppe pays for you, eh? Senator Buttonbrook roused himself at this. He had been sitting there, hardly speaking, wrapped in his cloak, his hands in his lap, his cigarette in the corner of his mouth. Now he suddenly started up and said sharply, Have you no money with you, Christian? Then I'll lend it to you. They put up their umbrellas and emerged from their shelter to take a little stroll. 
Frau Permanita came out once in a while to see her brother. They would walk as far as Seagull Rock or the other little ocean temple, and here Tony Buddenbrook, for some reason or other, was always seized by a mood of vague excitement and rebellion. She would repeatedly emphasize the independence and equality of all human beings, summarily repudiate all distinctions of rank and class, use some very strong language on the subject of privilege and arbitrary power, and demand in set terms the merit should receive its just reward. And then she talked about her own life, she talked well, she entertained her brother capitally. This child of fortune, so long as she walked upon this earth, had never once needed to suppress an emotion, to choke down or swallow anything she felt. She had never received in silence either the blows of the careless caresses of fate. And whatever she had received of joy or sorrow, she had straightway given forth again in a flow of childish, self-important trivialities. Her digestion was not perfect, it is true, but her heart, ah, her heart was light, her spirit was free, freer than she herself comprehended. She was not consumed by the inexpressible. No sorrow weighed her down or strove to speak but could not, and thus it was that her past left no mark upon her. She knew that she had led a troubled life. She knew it, that is, but at bottom she never believed it in it herself. She recognised it as a fact, since everybody else believed it, and she utilised it to her own advantage, talking of it and making herself great with it in her own eyes and those of others. With outraged virtue and dignity, she would call by name all those persons who had played havoc with her life, and in consequence with the prestige of the Buddenbrook family, the list had grown long with time. Thierry Trichk, Grunlich, Permanida, Tibertius, Winschenk, and Hagenstrom's, the state attorney, Severin, the what philo, all of them, Thomas, God will punish them. What that is my firm belief. Twilight was falling as they came up to the ocean temple, for the autumn was far advanced. They stood in one of the little chambers facing the bay, it smelled of wood, like the bathing cabins at the Kerr and its walls were scribbled over with mottos, initials, hearts, and rhymes. They stood and looked out over the dripping slope across the narrow stony strip of beach out of the turbid, restless sea. Great waves, said Thomas Buddenbrook, how they come on and break, come on and break, one after another, endlessly, idly, empty and vast, and yet, like all the simple, inevitable things they soothe, they console after all. I have learned to love the sea more and more. Once, I think, I cared more for the mountains, because they lay farther off. Now I do not long for them. They would only frighten and abash me. They are too capricious, too manifold, too anomalous. I know I should feel myself vanquished in their presence. What sort of men prefer the monotony of the sea? Those, I think, who have looked so long and deeply into the complexities of the spirit. They ask of outward things merely that they should possess one quality above all. Simplicity. It is true that in the mountains one clambers briskly about, while beside the sea one sits quietly on the shore. This is a difference, but a superficial one. The real difference is in the look with which one pays homage to the one and the other. It is a strong, challenging gaze, full of enterprise, that can soar from peak to peak, but the eyes that rest on the wide ocean and 
are soothed by the sight of its waves rolling on forever mystically, relentlessly, are those that are already wearied by looking too deep into the solemn perplexities of life. Health and illness, that is the difference. The man whose strength is unexhausted climbs boldly up into the lofty multiplicity of the mountain heights. But it is when one is worn out with turning one's eyes inward upon the bewildering complexity of the human heart that one finds peace in resting them on the wideness of the sea. Frau Pomenida was silent and uncomfortable, as simple people are when a profound truth is suddenly expressed in the middle of a conventional conversation. People don't say such things, she thought to herself, and looked out to see so as not to show her feeling by meeting his eyes. Then, in the silence to help amends, make amends for an embarrassment which she could not help, she drew his arm through hers. And that's the chapter. I like it when they're at the sea. It's nice. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.